Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you were young, your heart was an open book. You used to say, live and let live. No, you did. You did, you did, you did. But if this ever-changing world in which we're living makes you give in and cry, listen to politics on the couch. That's enough of that. I'm Raphael Bear, and in this episode, I'll be looking at change, specifically the fear of it, the sense that everything in politics is sliding out of control, and what those of us who kind of miss some of the older, familiar ways can and should be doing about it. What if there's no going back? But it feels like the people leading the march forwards are wrong, or worse, completely mad. Don't panic. I've got an excellent guide for the journey. He's a former colleague of mine, a comrade, and the author of a new book called Identity, Ignorance, Innovation, Why the Old Politics is Useless and What to Do About It. He is Matthew Dancona, and on this podcast, among friends, he's just Matt. Matt is one of the country's most astute, well-connected and erudite political commentators. I got to know him as a columnist for The Guardian, but he's been deputy editor of The Sunday Telegraph, editor of The Spectator. He's written a number of books, including a definitive inside story of the Cameron Clegg coalition government uh, and a brilliant, concise diagnosis of what is meant by post-truth politics called post-truth politics. He is an editor and partner at Tortoise Media. I recommend the audio essays he's done for them on the government's handling of the pandemic. They're consistently some of the best reporting and analysis you'll hear outside of this podcast, of course. Matt's new book is a truly impressive piece of cultural political analysis that diagnoses a lot of what has gone wrong with the way democratic politics is organised and what we can do about it. Now, we didn't have time to cover the whole picture. You should read the book for that. I learnt a lot from it, including a word I had not encountered before. Metathesiophobia. I can hardly even say it. But it is a very relevant concept for a podcast that likes to find the psychological angle in politics. So I started by asking Matt what exactly it is. Well, metathesiophobia is the fear of change, which of course is one of the most basic and familiar human impulses and instincts. It's not new. But as change has accelerated and more to the point has become sort of omnidirectional, you know, change is is hitting us from all directions in our lives. So we've become resistant to change in lots of ways. And our relationship with change has 
changed. One of the things that struck me was that a lot of the people that were winning the populist arguments were those who tried to turn change into a, a safety concept. So Trump was make America great again. The Brexiteers was uh, take back control. There was a lot of human agency involved. It was all about, we know that you feel bombarded. We know that you feel uh, totally unmoored and under threat from all these forces, hectic forces that you're subject to, but we can restore agency control, empower you, you know, and that was a very interesting reflection because it seems to me that there was there was truth in the concept that people are worried about their loss of agency but that the populist response which was the best way to recover control over your life is to blame lots of people you know to identify groups who are to blame immigrants and elites and so on and then to particularly blame those elites for somehow thwarting the will of the capital p people as if there are simple solutions to complex problems, was a really bad way of getting stuff done. I mean, it had all sorts of ethical problems, but actually, you know, one thing we've learned about the populist right is they're not very good at getting stuff done. Like they can be very good at campaigning, but they're not actually, they haven't really yet devised a, a workable governing model. Right. I want to come on to the, the question of how, you know, or if you even can transition from winning power to actually trying to solve some of the, the practical problems that these governments, whether it was Trump or whether it was Boris Johnson, they're slightly different things. We can maybe talk about that encounter once they have used their methodology for seizing power. But before we do, I want to interrogate slightly first the fact that this is something new or, and be confident that it is, because it's a point you actually make in the book that every generation has always been slightly alarmed by change. If you've been born before the industrial revolution you would you know be entitled to think wow things are happening way too fast or you know railways or imagining life before and after electricity just to be clear what is qualitatively different in human history about not just the fact that things are changing quickly but something else in the nature of change that means it's this time it's different well you're absolutely right of course that, that you know that every uh, century has had at least one revolution in what it is to be a human being often driven by science or technology. I mean, there's a, that wonderful Douglas Adams, I think it's Douglas Adams, who says technology is anything that happens after you're 30. And I, I, I think that's kind of kind of true. You can oversell the idea that, that change is new. In fact, it's just not the case. What is new, I think, is the, uh, the extent to which change is happening on all fronts now. So every aspect of the human experience is, be, is subject to change uh, from what it means to be a man or a woman, to how we write, to how we learn, to how we work, to um, how we uh, transported, to, to everything. And all these things are happening at the same time. The other thing is the sheer pace of change, which I think is the distinctive characteristic of, you know, what's broadly called the digital revolution, is that you know, it's, it is remarkable, I think, to think that Facebook didn't exist until 2004. Smartphones only came in around that time too. Broadband, the same. The world in which we now live um, is really only 15 years old. To a huge extent, we're still in the Wild West on a lot of fronts. Right. So we haven't really worked out what about the way we're conducting politics and things that uh, you and I might find 
dramatic or radical or alarming are a sort of for want of a better word, teething problems with the fact that there's a whole new technology that's affecting the way we do things. How much, I suppose, from the way we remembered politics being done, you know, before Facebook is available to us? And to what extent we just have to put all that behind us, say it's not coming back, forget it. Uh, if you're nostalgic about that world, which I think a lot of people listening to this podcast probably are because they're disoriented by the change uh, and things that have been going on. But frankly, you just have to get over it. I got that slight impression from the book that you know, you're addressing the reader, but also to an extent yourself saying, you've just got to get over the fact that, that w- the way you grew up thinking of politics, it, it ain't coming back. Yes. I mean, I mean, I think all, all books, however thematic they, they are, are, are to some extent, exercises in autobiography, and this is no exception. You know, I, I turned 21 in 1989, so the kind of definitive um, events for me were, when I was starting out, I suppose, in journalism, were the end of the Cold War and um, the fatwa against Salman Rushdie and then Mandela coming out of prison and, and the liberation of Eastern Europe and the apparent emergence of a, a liberal settlement, which has proved much more frangible than certainly any of us thought at the time. One of the purposes of the book is, is, is indeed to try and bolster and save what I think is right about the liberal settlement from the, the, you know, a lot of the, the forces that are subverting it at the moment. Um, so my, the central message of the book is not throw liberalism out the, the, the window, it's it, make it adapt to a new con- concept. I think that um, it's certainly the case that you know, politics as a kind of procedure has changed fundamentally. And, you know, I'm I'm very struck by the, the difference between what you might call network politics, which is essentially a digital phenomenon, and institutional politics, which is obviously what it says. And I think what you're going to see in America in, in the Biden years is a is a battle between the two, um, even within the Republican Party, actually, because I think there is a sort of Trumpite network which continues to operate and may or may not continue to dominate the Republican Party. And then there is a battle by the Biden presidency to restore at least as much of the old institutional order as he can. So but that's a really important and quite a challenging distinction there because you know, the, I understand that the sort of the network as an idiom for politics that's more fluid and goes with the grain of the digital environment against I mean, frankly, the institutional basis, of which you know we would probably locate in a kind of post forty-five second half of the twentieth century, rising out of the ashes of the Second World War, uh, built on the moral capital and authority of the rejection of totalitarianism and the never again ethos of the Holocaust. You know, those are really important foundations, and you know, we a lot of us spent time criticizing the Trump regime and, and worrying about Brexit because it was tunneling underneath the foundations of those institutions. And so to say, yeah, but maybe those institutions are just simply aren't equal to the moment, uh, that is quite a disturbing conclusion to come to for people who have thought, well, what we need to do is join hands in the ring around those institutions and protect them. I think there, there is a distinction to be drawn between as it were, how we conduct domestic politics and multilateralism on the global stage. I mean, you're right, Rafta. I mean that that that, and and I'm I remain, you know, fundamentally and and for life wedded to 
the basis of the post-war international order, and not least for the reasons you cited. I'm utterly endorse Biden's attempt to sort of put some juice back into that. Uh, the question is, what do you have to do to make the UN a 21st century force? NATO, to an extent, you know, that has only latterly become fully clear, nearly fell to pieces under Trump. Um, how can we make NATO more uh, kind of resistant to a, a future Trump? I mean, that's that's a genuine and clear and present danger question. Um, the World Health Organization has obviously been found wanting in the pandemic. So my my criticisms of institutional politics are not, oh, you know, that's all done. Uh, forget about that. It's more that um, one has to understand that power has a habit of, of kind of moving house. Uh, and particularly in domestic politics, I think it has moved house uh, a lot to digital networks. Take a, a, a micro example of this. What used to be backbench groups in the Conservative Party, you know, the various sort of so-called research groups, which I don't think do very much research, but certainly do a lot of rebellion, are really WhatsApp groups. I mean, I don't think they they actually meet in person very much. They, they can't at the moment because of, of lockdown. Um, but, but in fact, WhatsApp has become, you know, a fundamental driver of what it is to be involved in the political process very quickly. And one of the things that happens when a procedure, a process, a technique, um, a technology becomes dominant very fast is that we're struggling to work out what that means because it often gives authority to the gatekeepers in a way that, you know, originally when the digital revolution began, we were assured would never happen. Be aware that, 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 that these changes are happening, whether you like it or not. Going back to Biden and the Democratic Party, but obviously also the Labour Party in the UK, there is the kind of the traditional party structures and the institution. And then there is movement politics, which for a long time was celebrated as a really great and joyous thing, um, but seems to be channeling an awful lot of radical energy that turns out actually to be very threatening to people who thought they had been on the left or thought they were on on the you know, sort of centre liberal left side of politics. So there is this division now, maybe I'm wrong, between a kind of a radical left ethos that is not really interested in uh, a defence of traditional institutional politics and where I would sort of place you, if I've read the book correctly, which is a, a sort of a bit more squeamish about that radicalism, but also recognises that it has grown out of uh, liberal politics and therefore is something that has to be uh, sort of heeded and listened to more respectfully than you would bother showing respect for, you know, Steve Bannon or the populist right. That was a really long and convoluted observation. Did that make sense? It did make sense. I mean, I suppose to a certain extent, it's it's driven by the fact that although I write a lot about America in the book, you know, I'm in obviously in the UK, and at the moment, um, the heat, the energy is on the right. It, it is interesting to plot. The future of Keir Starmer's Labour, to question how he will deal with the Corbynite movement as it still exists, but inevitably, you know, my interest was more drawn to what is modern conservatism in this country about. The challenge then comes in America, where there is a, you know, happily a, a, a no longer a Trump presidency, and there is this. Um, rather unexpected and rather interesting alliance between Joe Biden, who I think was always an implausible presidential candidate until right now, you know, that, that 
America right now absolutely needed someone like Joe Biden, who has this kind of grand paternal authority mixed with a, a life of, of, of deep uh, adversity and suffering and mourning, which he brings to the table. Um, and the fact that he joined up with Kamala Harris kind of shows a, an, an awareness that, that, that he has to be a bridge to the future as well. This is a, this is a powerful formula, um, but the legacy he has is dire, um, obviously epidemiologically, because he's got to get America back on track in, in the pandemic uh, and uh, also, you know, huge events economically going on now. You know, I, I'm not sure he's going to be a Roosevelt, but I don't think he's going to be a Jimmy Carter. Coming back to, to uh, metathesiophobia, there is an extent, isn't there, I think, to which Biden, well, first of all, he was able to win by representing a kind of stolid return to kind of cultural political normalcy just the kind of can we put that whole period of 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 volatility and anger and rage behind us and certainly i think part of the appeal setting aside the the the, the kamala harris bit of the ticket for a moment that it's actually there's an awful lot of small c conservatism and nostalgia in liberal politics that looks at someone like biden and goes oh the grown-ups are back in the room you know, thank goodness for that. And it's not actually, I don't know how easy that's going to be to sustain when actually a large part of the left, to some extent, has more in common with the kind of Brexiteer, radical, or even in some sense, Trumpian right in terms of thrilling at the sound of breaking glass. Everything needs smashing up. The system is fundamentally broken. It, it, there is the, the anti-establishment left in terms of the form, it's not the actual arguments or not the ethics of it, sounds a lot more like the radical right than it does like kind of cuddly Uncle Joe Biden, you know, that small C conservative nostalgic type of liberalism. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the most interesting things about Biden is that at this point, he's his function is still kind of primarily analgesic. You know, he's he's kind of a pain relief president who's just making people feel better after the 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 ordeal of of Trump which actually you know became even more of an ordeal after Trump had lost the election and with the storming of the capitol on January the 6th um but on the other hand um what's unresolved in 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 Biden's victory is is best best captured in the meme of Bernie Sanders in his mittens at the inauguration looking unbelievably angry and impatient and bored and and cross and the the, the speed with which that image be became etched into the global digital consciousness was no accident i think so um so unpack what, what do you think that actually represented well i mean like all one of the things that's really interesting about modern politics is that humor has started to play a really uh ambiguous role so um to take the proud boys who were a significant force in the the mob that invaded the capital in January. The Proud Boys started off as something really out of National Lampoon's Animal House. I mean, they're a joke. They were founded by this guy, Gavin McInnes, who's a kind of shock jock, formerly part of one of the founders of Vice magazine, um, a sort of self-appointed uh, fashion and style guru. 
And they were really just, you know, overweight men in Fred Perry shirts who met and they they and drank beer and talked about how great the West was. Um, but their, you know, their initiation ceremonies were uh, involved, you know, naming breakfast cereals while you were being punched not very hard by your comrades and then singing songs from Disney's Aladdin. So, you know, initially a sort of pretty pretty laughable and and risible business and and then so i got to say then became a whole new world so that's 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 an aladdin musical i know, I know, okay, I know. Okay, i'm glad i just wanted to check that we're, we're you're aware of the effortless way which i threw in that little disney musical sec it was it was beautifully done right um i can't i kind of still am amazed by how they got from a to b which was um just something that occasionally appeared in articles about aren't these people funny and then um they became a franchise and uh radicalized and before you knew it they were carrying um heavy armaments into the heart of american democracy um and the reason i say humor is an important force is that and it's this is a troubling reflection actually because i'm what irony and humor are kind of for me at the absolute heart of what makes liberalism brilliant which is the capacity to see ambiguity and um undermine pomposity and laugh at things including yourself so um if to an extent i'd ever really thought about the proud boys before um things got really nasty i thought well they're just silly you know people and 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 that was that it, but it hadn't occurred to me that they'd become, they'd turn into a kind of militia, a genuinely dangerous militia force. But that is, again, one of the things that this morphing that now happens. Um, now, well, this, this is so this is an incredibly important and actually a sort of philosophical point, I think, because you're right. The whole of the outright and, and the far right in America and, and a lot of the radical right, by extension, I think, because the sort of cultural phenomenon crosses the Atlantic very quickly in, in the UK and in fact across Europe is suffused with the ethos of, you know, what on the internet we call lulls, you know, this idea that aggressively nihilistic, almost anarchic sense of humour uh, that uses irony as a devious mechanism for self-defence in a way. You sort of, you do the most offensive, egregious thing you can, and then you say, oh, well, I was only joking. Come on, we all get, we're all in on the joke here, aren't we? Uh, and that for a while was the sort of the cultural property of the outright subculture. And then you see it more or less elevated to the uh, governing doctrine in the form of Trump. And even I'd say to a lesser extent, Boris Johnson as well, a little bit, the sense that whatever you do, you do with a bit of a knowing wink and you present your critics as terribly straight-laced and pious and po-faced and, and not getting the joke. It's fantastically disarming and, and effective in a way that makes it very hard to, to get a purchase on uh, as a critic or as a political opponent. I think this is absolutely true and at the heart of the whole problem and also understanding the future, which is that what happened in the case of Trump was that We'd had many cases of entertainers becoming politicians, conspicuously Ronald Reagan, uh, Schwarzenegger, and so on. But what we hadn't had was entertain the world of entertainment kind of actually annexing the world of politics. Because Trump won the presidency not by becoming a politician, 
but by using the the techniques of, of of entertainment and mockery and reality television, this was how he won the primaries. Was he just gave them all, you know, nicknames uh, or uh, or abusive taglines? You know, like um, uh, Jeb Bush was was sleepy and Marco Rubio was little Marco, and 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 so on and so on. And this became almost like a sort of pantomime, um, which you had people who were willing to argue about school vouchers and the second amendment being uh, subjected to the, the you know the the the, the logic and, and and showbiz of reality tv and and, um, and vaudeville and it worked and it continued to work to a limited extent in office um you know trump was and remains a showbiz character more than a, a p- politician and what I'm sure whatever he does next, whether it's a disaster, disastrous failure or what, whatever it is, it will be it will retain that entertainment quality. Now, but it works. Sorry to interrupt, but it works partly if you've got an audience that doesn't think the stakes are all that high. I, 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 that's, I would suggest. So, so, you know, for example, I mean, I remember talking to uh, a, a Trump supporter in 2016 and it happened a lot in relation to Brexit in the argument about, you know, how things could go wrong if you had a no deal Brexit. And the response was generally just profound scepticism of the proposition that things could really go that badly wrong. So is there just a kind of a bedrock of complacency that ultimately we've sort of forgotten what the abyss really looks like, how dark it is down there, because we've had a long period of it being actually, you know, even when you've had recessions, things go a bit wrong. They never go 1939 wrong, or they haven't. Obviously, they do in 1939. They haven't for recent generations gone that wrong. And therefore, you think it's okay to gamble on a cloud. Yes. And also, the, not just complacency as a factor, but also a measure of despair in the capacity of politics to offer meaningful transformative change. So you'd rather have a clown who, in that endlessly used and slightly ridiculous phrase, talk straight, than you would um, someone who is a technocrat. Because you've had a generation of technocrats telling you they're going to make everything better and you don't believe that it has made it better. And you feel that you're being pummeled by forces of globalization, though you probably don't call them that, and that no one is helping you. You know, your jobs, the jobs in your town have gone, possibly abroad, um, and no one cares. And Trump's rallies, I always felt, were quasi-religious in this extent, to this extent, because they, you know, part of it was shtick, part of it was him hamming it up. But the other part was, I get it, I hear you, you know, I see you. People felt seen by Trump. And that was very, very effective because Hillary had a uh, Hillary Clinton had a, in 2016 had a uh, a group of people who were fantastically loyal to her. But what she didn't do was reach out uh, to people and say, "I see you," or not or not in an effective way. There are two different groups here that were in danger of conflating, though, in terms of thinking, as opposed to. You know, how bad could it really get? There's is one response that makes you complacent and think, well, let's take, you know, this Trump guy, it'll be funny, basically, or at least like, you know, we'll roll the dice. And also it couldn't possibly get any worse, uh, a sense that the system hasn't, as you just described, delivered. But in a sense, I coming at this from a liberal perspective, or as it were, sort of classically liberal perspective, probably, can 
find it quite easy to articulate that, as it were, on behalf of the older, you know, 50, 60 something blue collar worker in Pennsylvania whose Rust Belt industry job is never coming back and they feel cheated and robbed by globalization uh, and they're angry. And as you say, Trump absolutely sold them, sold himself as the uh, as the response to that anger. What I think I've had to work harder at to grasp and that you cover well in the book is the equivalent anger of a younger generation that despises Trump even more than we might, uh, but also sees our generation of liberals as being part of the big establishment stitch up. We were the winners from globalization, managed to get a deposit together for a house. In a sense, for those people, the younger generation who look at us as part of that problem, that is much more threatening emotionally and psychologically for for the kind of the classic liberal, right? Absolutely, because there really is a generation shift or gap, whatever you want to call it. People always claim generation gaps are going on. And in fact, they really amount very rarely to such a thing. They generally uh, amount to um, a change in fashion, uh, music and preferred narcotic. Um, and that happens once every 10 years or so. But very rarely does a generational shift happen where you have a observable and really significant divide. And it and this is one of them, where under the guise of whatever, whatever you want to call it, identity politics or uh, social justice movements or whatever, a very new way of seeing the world has now become orthodox amongst the young. And a lot of it includes very low opinion of traditional liberalism. There is when you describe this phenomenon in the book, more ambivalence in the author's voice than I think in all in anything else uh, in the book. In a good way, I don't mean that as a criticism. I think you're very, very careful not to blame that generation while describing aspects of their politics uh, and the way they look at the world, to this reader at least, seems pretty critical. Well, I suppose my primary purpose in terms of generations, is to urge my fellow liberals not to totally reject identity politics. Because I think that in some respects, many respects, they are identity politics are a useful and um, potentially permanent reproach to some things that have gone badly wrong in liberalism. You know, their approach to our faith in meritocracy, their approach to our faith in individualism, their approach to our belief in the level playing field. At this point in history, people have started to gather around groupings as their primary defining sort of political characteristic. Their embrace of identity politics is not a, a matter of false consciousness. It's a genuine and sincere belief that politics as traditionally constructed does not offer a level playing field and you know me too black lives matter the trans movement the gender critical movement the the youth movement in favor of um environmental work it, it's very 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 much intertwined and this has to do i think with a genuine belief that things like free speech and individualism and meritocracy and traditional liberal institutions just don't deliver now you're right. There, there is a, also a critique of identity politics. I mean, explicitly, there's a whole chapter on um, where identity politics goes wrong. And I don't resile from a word of that. But I'm primarily addressing my own generation in that sense, which is to say, 
you know, we cannot just dismiss this as a phase or a fad. It isn't going to go away, and nor should it, because actually we have failed in bringing people of colour into the full embrace of liberal rights. And, you know, it is scandalous that women are still having to talk about the gender pay gap and so on and so on. I think those lessons are worth learning. Now, right. But it's what's interesting in that respect. And, you know, I say this because I think it expresses a, a tension or, or an ambivalence that I can identify with. In order to make that argument, you work very hard to establish your own entitlement to still be part of the conversation. I'm just like you describe yourself. This is you talking about yourself in the book. You say uh, you are, by most reckonings, a one man privileged carnival and an avatar for patriarchy and power. Um, you know, you're being pretty hard on yourself there. Uh, what you, but you obviously felt the need to body check your privilege that hard to the ground in order to, as it were, argue for your permission just to even discuss the, the merits and demerits of identity politics. Well, of course, I then go on to say that I, I don't agree with the stay in your lane argument at all. Uh, I don't think a pluralist society can have lanes. But it seemed to me that so you better just identify, what do you mean by stay in your lane? I mean, I know what you mean because I've read the book, but it's probably worth unpacking a bit. Stay in your lane argument is that only those who have experienced or have lived experience of a particular political problem or a political challenge are really entitled to talk about it. And this sounds initially as, as a, a perfectly sort of interesting, reasonable proposition until you realise that no diverse and pluralist society can possibly operate on that basis. I mean, if you have to have lived the experience in order to talk about it, then we're all stenographers. We're just taking notes from each other. That's not a basis on which any society can operate. So I've always found the stay in your lane argument particularly inf infantile, actually. I mean, that, that in the whole in the whole sort of identity politics toolkit, that is the daftest idea. Because any form of rights negotiation, value pluralism is going to involve a lot of negotiation. And social media compounds this hugely by saying, but you don't have any lived experience of this. Uh, how dare you talk about it? Well, you know, I accept the, the need to listen to those that have lived experience of any problem and to educate myself and to uh, immerse myself in all sides of the argument. But I also insist upon the on the right to write and talk about anything I like. The less radical or a differently configured version of that argument that makes it sound less daft, uh, for want of a better word, is that actually people who have already, by virtue of the whole edifice and, and hierarchy of privilege that has got people like you and me to the point where we get to write newspaper columns uh, and do podcasts, actually, because there is limited bandwidth, and only a limited amount of, of platform space, we actually, it is incumbent on us not to necessarily make our argument for how things ought to be, but literally to shut up and let other people have the microphone for a change. That I don't mind. I think the pass the mic argument is a different one, which is, you know, make sure that more people have more access to more platform space, more bandwidth. That's a different point. But the idea that, that as well, you know, to use your characterization, people like us should never speak about certain subjects. I, that, that, and that is made, that I don't buy. It's not even a runner, to be honest. I mean, sub-liberals will self-censor and step back. But in the end, no meaningful progress can come about until a thorough debate has been had in which everyone has been involved. And that's just a lesson of history. As Mandela most obviously understood very well and was clear in the, the Good Friday Agreement and everything, the stay in your lane argument 
is to me a, a non-starter. However, I felt when I was writing the book and I realized I was going to be dealing with identity politics a lot and that this was a objection that would be made, that I might as well make the objection myself, if only to somewhat knock it down, which was to say, look, you know, I, I do understand what you might think. You know, what is a 53-year-old man with all the good fortune that I've had? What, what the hell do I think I am doing in this terrain at all? And the and the simple answer is I, I'll go any in any terrain I want to. But I also felt it was important to preempt that criticism. Otherwise, I mean, what, one of the problems with identity politics is that a lot of it gets hung up on secondary issues about sort of auditions about who's allowed to speak. And you can see this particularly on social media, that a lot of what starts off as a substantive question then degenerates into, but you shouldn't be talking about this at all, or, you know, why are you even on this thread? And I find that an evasive and in the end craven way of addressing issues of progress. And I think it's a new and depressing feature of social justice discussions that so much energy and time is devoted about who should be in the room. It has yeah, in the past often been a tension between a kind of classically liberal view, that, I mean, set, setting aside liberal economics, but the sort of liberal political view that is all about the rights of the individual uh, and using individuality as the sort of sacrosanct principle that's a defence against totalitarianism uh, and therefore very much involved in the fight on behalf of free speech uh, and resistant to the radical left during the Cold War uh, and socialism, the sort of which essentially rejects liberal a lot of liberal thinking as basically a kind of bourgeois way of caring a bit about social justice and poor people, but not enough to really dismantle the system in the way that's going to help them. And you know, sees essentially collective action as the only drastic way you're really going to change things, which becomes at a philosophical level, fundamentally illiberal because you end up having to say, look, some individuals are going to have to miss out and make sacrifices in pursuit of a collective good. But that is, that's a kind of a traditional tension between collective radical left politics and individualist liberal politics. And is that basically just the same thing that's happening now, but we've just got different words for it? Or is something qualitatively different happening? Is this new Left. You, it's interesting, you don't use the word woke in the book, which I think is probably sensible because it's just such a fraught term now it doesn't help. But if we don't use that, what is the actual word for this new radical left set of ideas or doctrines uh, that seems to have emerged that's distinct from the old radical left? Well, I'm tempted to say the new word is Twitter in the sense that accountability has been redistributed, which is that, you know, I started journalism in a world where there were seven national daily newspapers and only a handful of television channels. And now we live in a world where, any, you know, the cost of having, you know, access to a, a, a medium that you can, you know, access to the whole of the world, if you want, is so close to zero, it's, it, it is almost zero. So, you know, anyone can do it. And it, I think it is fair that to say that some middle-aged columnists and, you know, members of the liberal elite, for want of a better phrase, have reacted very badly to finding out that not everyone uh, reveres and loves them. And I have no real kind of sympathy with that. It's healthy to be a commentator in a position of, of power uh, in the media and yet to, you know, have people chucking their ideas at you and that, that there's something good about that. Now, 
that's different to what it often becomes, which is an attempt to say, well, you shouldn't even be writing about this. You know, you shouldn't be writing about trans. You shouldn't be writing about um, George Floyd. You shouldn't be writing about Me Too. You shouldn't, you just shouldn't be in the room. I don't accept that because I think that part of the definition of living in an intelligent and civilized society is an informed curiosity. The idea that somehow we're all going to be better off if we exist in social silos where tiny groups have come to caucus decisions and everyone else is, is excluded from it. You don't have to say it to realise it, 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 it doesn't work. And yet what the media has done is encourage that view. Is this all ultimately a function of the still triumphant march of liberal capitalism as a doctrine in the sense that what you have is a lot of the impetus for drastic social change and a battle for equality or more egalitarian ethos that would once have sort of nested in variations on the theme of Marxism-Leninism, which also gave you an economic account, but just doesn't really have that anymore. So you end up sort of constantly with with an, all that idealistic, socialistic energy that pretty much every generation discovers at some point, more or less running around just kicking the shins of capitalism because they don't really have an actual alternative program that they would implement as distinct from the one that's basically driven world economy more or less nonstop for the last generation. I don't see politics as at its weakest when it's just performative. You know, when it thinks that signalling um, outrage and saying I'm very angry and I want this person to be dismissed from the public stage actually helps anyone. I like the David Lammy definition of identity politics, which is all about praxis and implementation. You know, after the uh, death of George Floyd, he gave an incredible uh, interview on the Today programme, which I quote in the book, which in which he listed the unimplemented recommendations of various uh, reviews into racial justice that were just sitting in the inbox of Whitehall. And he just listed them and said, implement them, implement them, implement them. That's my, you know, that's my kind of identity politics. I think that's brilliant because it's all about action. You know, I'm sure that David would agree with a lot of the things that are performative too, but he would only regard the, the performative bit as a prelude at most to getting stuff done. And uh, what worries me about some of the manifestations of identity politics is that it's it's seen as enough just to say, I hate JK Rowling, which you may do, you know, and you're entitled to. But so what? Where, where does that actually, I mean, saying I hate JK Rowling does not, help the life of a single trans person um, and it's deluded to think otherwise. I mean in a sense that distinction between what makes you feel better because you feel you've ex given expression to something or you've struck back at privilege uh, as opposed to what would work as a as a policy program that you could apply you know in government gets us back to what you mentioned right at the beginning uh, which is actually the failure of the right to honour its commitment, having one power to just actually govern effectively. And it's quite interesting. I mean, here we are talking about some of the deficiencies of, of left ideology as it's now expressing itself. But one of the extraordinary things is in its rampant position now, the sort of radical conservative doctrine is also kind of weirdly ineffective in government. And in fact, in many ways, not even all that conservative. You know, it's deeply unfashionable even on the right to be in favor of just 
keeping old fashioned things for their own sake because they're probably worth preserving. You know, so I mean, someone like Dominic Cummings um, or Steve Bannon, uh, they're not in a sort of a meaningful sense of the word conservative, if you understand in that you know, a presumption that there is inherent value in institutions that have been passed down across generations. Yeah, and they are engaged in another form of performative politics. So I was very interested in the the aftermath of um, Dominic Cummings's exit from Number Ten and and of his sidekick Lee Kane, who'd been director of communications. Because what I think everyone was very relieved by, first of all, was the the, the sort of sudden absence of this very boisey, slightly bullying atmosphere that, that that the Vote Leave gang in Number Ten had created. What is not missed at all is the other side of, of the kind of Cummings agenda, which reminds me of the character Julius Nicholson in in The Thick of It, which was, you know, Malcolm Tucker always mocking him for wanting to set up a department for counting the moon. Well, that's exactly what Cummings was like. You know, in, unbelievable that in the middle of a pandemic, you know, he wanted to turn a large part of the cabinet office into a sort of simulacrum of mission con- NASA mission control from lots of space movies. Extraordinary. There's a kind of childishness to it, isn't there? The sense that these people are playing games, uh, that, that, you know, the the priority is winning uh, and the ethic is defined by who has won, but with a kind of certain purposelessness to what you actually want to accomplish for the country, for society, once you have one. Well, it's also, it's also based on the idea that everything is rubbish. So... Instead of saying, let's reform Whitehall, you start off from the basis that all Whitehall is rubbish and that what you need to do is recruit people who have nothing to do with Whitehall and um, bring them in. And, you know, that we know how about how well that little experiment went. And I think that that sort of infantilism is very important because, in fact, one of the reasons that vaccine rollout success and it is a success and one should salute it because it really has been quite remarkable. But one of the reasons that it is so jaw-dropping is because almost every aspect of the government's pandemic strategy before vaccine rollout was a disaster, from PPE to test and trace to smaller things, you know, um, efforts to inform the public about the the different levels of of enforceable tiers and so on. All of this was a complete chaos. And they did make some good decisions, uh, bringing AstraZeneca and Oxford together. You know, Matt Hancock did get them to the altar with the help of Professor John Bell at Oxford. And they did very well in procuring a huge number of AstraZeneca doses in advance. And they got lucky because the primary care networks that existed did have the data that was required to do a good vaccine rollout. I do think one of the reasons that we're all so agog is because we can't quite believe it's happening. Um, and actually, we had a year of a government that wasn't any good at governing at all. Uh, and it's a cabinet that was chosen explicitly because of Brexit loyalty. Not Yeah, to be, well, they were chosen to be a sort of intellectually mediocre, weak, hyper-loyal and ready, if necessary, to do the stupidest thing that has been seriously proposed by any government in our lifetime, which would be a no-deal Brexit. So that was the criterion for getting to the cabinet. So any one of them can do anything capable, then that's an achievement. The, the other example is how starry-eyed people are about Rishi Sunak, because he's the only occupant of a, of a high office of state who has any real, you know, at least a patina of... Um, competence. You know, no one really thinks Priti Patel is a, a good Home Secretary or that Dominic Raab is 
a good foreign secretary. No one possibly could. Um, and indeed, when you know Boris Johnson was seriously ill in hospital with COVID, you know, one of the problems that was bouncing around Number Ten in Whitehall was that because Dominic Raab is first secretary and therefore second in command, there's no you know there's no deputy prime minister at the moment, but he was the stand-in. You know, how is this going to work? And if you know, had the prime minister died, which we now know was a, a distinct possibility, what was going to happen now? That shouldn't be the case in a in a stable democracy. Whoever is in the the first secretary position, which I guess is uh, the nearest we have to the vice presidency, should be at least competent to take over in the event of the indisposition of the prime minister. Because we're getting short of time now, and we're here, we are talking about the personalities and the characters at the heart of government who have been sort of emerging gradually through conservative politics through their generation. I now need to ask you a question as Matt Dancona, former editor of The Spectator, been sort of operating journalistically around this sort of Tory generation. You know, a lot of them are your generation as well, and you might have known some of them uh, at Oxford and through Tory circles. And we've never had someone on the podcast before who actually can speak about these people as human beings, you know, of their acquaintance. And yet, you know, you're quite scathing about them. And I just trying to get a sense of how you manage personally that distance between analytical rigor as, as a journalist and the sort of engagement on a human level, knowing who these people are and having known them for quite a long time. Although I do know some of them, I know them very much in a, in a kind of just a journalistic sense. I was very much from the sort of late 90s onwards, part of a cohort of journalists arguing strongly for modernisation of the Conservative Party. It didn't work in 2001 when Mike Portillo ran for the leadership. And then Cameron, David Cameron and George Osborne embraced it immediately. Once it became clear that Ian Duncan Smith was not going to work, Michael Howard then became leader and Cameron and Osborne were waiting in the wings to be the modernising option and Cameron won the 2005 leadership contest and started to modernise the party. And for a time, it, it was very exciting and it looked as if the party was going to change. It was going to adopt new positions on social issues. It was going to come to terms finally, at least with the 60s, if not the rest of the subsequent decades. And it was going to embrace green issues and so on. And to be fair, you know, the things did emerge from that, like the uh, the Equality of Marriage Act. But the crash and subsequent austerity program really put a coach and horses through the modernization program. Uh, most of the greenery died a death. And more to the point, the whole row over the EU-Lisbon uh, treaty, which was the reheated constitutional treaty, and the fact that there wasn't going to be a, a referendum on it, just weaponized UKIP. And this was an in, this was a total game changer, which led Cameron to become, you know, uh, a, another Tory leader who was whose entire mind was occupied by the problem of Europe. He then calls a referendum. We know what then happened. And so the the, the Tory party went from being a sort of, let's say, a proto-modernizing party. It takes a long time to modernize a party to being quite quickly um, a populist right-wing party dominated by the Vote Leave campaign. And so it remains to a considerable extent. Comes back a little bit to what I was trying to get to earlier, the sense that I think a lot of people who think of themselves as traditionally liberal 
are actually occupying a space in the British political spectrum that is, for all intents and purposes, conservative in the sense that they and I and we, to an extent, I'm I'm probably part of this often too, are conditioned by a fear of surrendering a whole set of ways of doing things, protocols, conventions, institutions that have been overtaken by the radical left uh, and you know uh, the, this sort of weird Brexit Bolshevism, which is radical right, but has a kind of revolutionary, you know, almost a sort of Trotskyite revolutionary attitude sometimes to change. And actually, we're the conservatives now in, in that sense. I suppose if the book has a message, it's that for those precious things to be preserved, it, it isn't enough just to be conservative. One has to engage with the forces of progress and form an alliance with them. I, I don't personally think that the Conservative Party is going to be uh, a place that does very much to assist those those institutions for the time being. Indeed, you know, you mentioned the, the, the word woke. Well, you know, one of the things that is coming very fast down the road is uh, and it is called explicitly so i i'm not it's not my word woke wars you know i think that uh, robert jenrick and oliver dowden and the prime minister himself made it very clear that when the pandemic routine fatalities is over they're going to get really stuck into culture wars and this is going to be a very unpleasant business and i don't think there'll be much space in it for a kind of preservation of liberal values liberal institutions and indeed you know one of the things that the prime minister has made palpably clear and let's never forget it um, from the prorogation of parliament, you know, b- before the pandemic, that he, he is he's quite willing to um, trample on traditional liberal ideas and rights if it suits him. Right. Well, but this leads to a question that's come up quite a few times on this podcast over the year that we've been doing it, uh, which is the difficulty you come to having established, you know, how uh, effective often a kind of fight-picking, populist, uh, rabble-rousing politics can be. You know, the people who deny the complexity of certain issues, who are sort of willful simplifiers, offerers of glib solutions, stokers of rage, you know, deniers of complexity. They're sort of, they can be in tune with the digital zeitgeist. They can go with the grain of, of all sorts of cognitive biases that that operate and are, are accelerated by the internet. Um, so we can we can analyze and diagnose that problem and the effectiveness of that kind of politics all day long. And then as soon as it comes to, well, what does the practical counter politics actually look like? You end up with either books like yours, which are brilliant, but don't easily distill into a three word slogan because you've got a whole book to unpack exactly the nuances and the subtleties of your position or you're just kind of sitting on your hands waiting for the next Barack Obama to come along and make everything feel all right again and I'm I end up I don't want to sound too pessimistic but I end up being slightly at, at a loss as to how the kind of thoughtful moderators you know I, I described myself as almost conservative earlier I don't know kind of reject that analysis of myself but you know the, those of us who are in the business of protecting nuanced discourse and seeing both sides of these problems how the hell do we actually organize effective politics to counter all the things that seem to be working much better and constantly winning the arguments against us well i think part of it is and again this is why i wrote the book was that we we are in a period of transition and 
it isn't enough, as you say, to simply wait for the next Barack Obama. Or, you know, this will not be resolved by charismatic leadership alone. And indeed, it never was. I mean, the, the New Labour 1997 was not just the product of Tony Blair's personal charisma and undoubted political talents, you know, huge as they were. Uh, it was the product of a very, very long haul. And I think that now is a good time to alliance build and look at ways in which people who believe in the liberal ideal, but also um, live in the real world and live in today and are live in the connected world, work out their differences and try and find areas of common ground. This is not by any means a straightforward process. And nor should it be because, you know, politics is about Politics is very complicated. I mean, this is one of the reasons why populism is so uh, distressing and distortive, is that, of course, in a globalised, complex, um, ever-changing world such as the one we live in, of course, politics is going to be extremely confusing uh, at various points. And it is right now. Um, But that's no reason to give up. What does concern me is that there is so little energy, intellectual energy around, if you like, the centre left, the progressive left. I mean, there are great newspaper columnists, you're one of them, you know, who who are constantly addressing this problem. What there isn't is a sort of milieu. You know, oftentimes before a, a period of great change, you can you can detect a milieu. Now, of course, you know, there are no milieus during a pandemic. So let's hope that when we all start seeing each other again uh, in real life, that, that salons and meeting groups and, 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 and seminars and webinars and all, all these things start to acquire a bit more energy. Um, but at the moment, it is it is simply a sort of uh, what James O'Brien calls the footballification of politics, very polarised, very, very sterile a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, I've set my face to doing my little bit to try and stop that. Well, let's hope that your book can at least cultivate a milieu of more than just the two of us speaking remotely uh, on a podcast. I'm, I'm, I kind of believe it can. I also have to ask you, did you deliberately quote uh, Paul McCartney, live and let die there in your in that final peroration where you said in this ever-changing world uh, we're living? I think it's worse than that. I think it's just so etched into my mind. Uh, it, it took an, an enormous amount of discipline and restraint on my part not to just interrupt you there with a bit of a verse from uh, from live and let die um but uh, we'll we'll leave that up to the imagination of our podcast listeners uh, matthew dancona matt thank you so much for talking to us uh, and sharing your thoughts across such a wide spectrum of ideas concepts i that gives just a, a small flavor of uh, everything that's in the book which ranges even wider and even deeper than that. So I do really urge people to read it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.